And we're going to spend our time together today doing what I think pleases God most. Sitting under his word, listening to him speak to us. Jesus came the first time to usher in the kingdom of God. In fact, we saw in the workbook this quote from Bible scholars Wellman Gentry, which is a resource we use to write the, the workbook. They write this, the promise to David of an eternal house and a seed or an offspring is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David, who because of his resurrection is an eternal person. And through his coming person and work, an eternal kingdom has already begun. To think that we arose this morning, regardless of what the sound of our alarm clock was like, but we arose as Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of God because it has come. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And yet we also read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 to 28, that Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it's an interesting phrase that the author uses that Jesus sacrificed himself at the end of the ages, which is 2,000 years ago, the end of the ages, 2,000 years ago. Verse 27 is, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. You see, Jesus is gone and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, but we need to make sure that we understand that that Jesus who came once to deal with sin has also in his death and resurrection been exalted to the right hand of the Father and has promised us, I'm coming back. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and I will get you and you will be with me where I am. And all those who are eager for that moment, that is what a Christian hope is. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is the eternal son of, of David because he is the resurrected Messiah. He reigns on David's eternal throne because he's exalted to the right hand of God. He is ruling over an eternal kingdom that has already been ushered in and inaugurated in his first coming, but will finally and fully be established when he returns the second time. This is the Davidic covenant. And it's good. So what we're going to do is take some time to look at the Davidic covenant, how it fleshes out in the Old Testament, and then we're going to hightail it to the New Testament with the time that we have left and do what we can there to see just how hopeful this Davidic covenant really is. You know, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we've looked at the Mosaic covenant, and I wanna show you this morning how those two covenants which preceded the Davidic covenant actually work together with the Davidic covenant. So they're kind of a unit. All three of them come together. If you remember, God promised Abraham in Genesis 17 verse six, that I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. And then this promise, and kings shall come from you. And so from the Abrahamic covenant, we have this understanding as good Bible readers that we should expect at some point in the history of, of Israel that there would come kings. And so as Larry preached last week about the Mosaic covenant in which God calls the nation of Israel his treasured possessions, Larry also preached about how the people of Israel are to be a kingdom of priests. 
And by the way, if you didn't hear Larry's sermon last week, I encourage you to go listen to it because it is probably the best sermon on the Mosaic Covenant I've ever heard. So please listen to that. And Larry focused on the fact that this nation was to be a kingdom of priests in accordance with Exodus 19, verse 6, where not only the people are a treasured possession, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you think about it, the only way to become a kingdom of priests is to have two things involved. Number one is you have to be a kingdom in order to be a kingdom of priests, which implies a king. And you have to be priests in order to be kingdom of priests. It's not rocket science. The thing is, the Mosaic Covenant established the Levitical priesthood. It established the priesthood by which God would relate to his people and the people would relate to God. And so that's already established, but we're still waiting for the kingdom aspect. We're still waiting for the king. And when the king and his kingdom come, then the people will be what they were intended to be, namely a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And if you think about it, Larry preached on the fact that the Mosaic Covenant defined God's law on how to live as God's treasured possessions in the promised land. It included instructions for the future covenant king. In other words, if God is going to place his people in a land and then give them a law to help them navigate how to live in the land that he's given them, and he's expecting that a king would eventually arise, then we would expect that there should be instructions for the king. And that's exactly what we have in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we see it in verse 14 and 15, where God gives permission for the establishment of a king and a kingdom. He says, when you inherit the land and you say to yourself, I will set a king over me like all the other nations, verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So yes, you can have a kingdom, but it has to be someone who is Jewish, somebody who is from among you. And then in verse 16 and 17, God then forbids this king from pursuing the common idolatries of what it means to be a human being, the pursuit of money, sex, and power. It says this in verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. And you may think, what does that have got to do with anything? Well, chariots and horses were powerful military tools. And so you do not acquire many horses because now all of a sudden what you're doing is no longer relying on God, you're relying on your military your power. So he shouldn't do that. In verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. He shouldn't be overly indulging himself in sex because you don't want his heart turning away. And he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He's the pursuit of wealth. And it's really interesting. Those three idols are so common to what it means to be a human. In fact, if you were to watch the news this last week or even the upcoming week and maybe the week after that, somebody eventually is going to be talked about as exploiting their power of wealth and uh, being some sort of sex scandal or something like that. It's always, you, you see it all the time, money, sex, and power, money, sex, and power. That's the idol of the human heart. And the king of Israel is to avoid those things. In verse 18 and 19, then God commands the king to write a copy of the book of Deuteronomy for himself. And the Levites were to test it for accuracy to make sure he didn't, you know, well, I don't like that one. Let me just remove that one. Nothing like that. You don't tamper with God's word. 
And so they would test it. And then in verse 19, it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to... um, he may learn to fear the Lord as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them so that his heart may not lift it above his brothers, that's pride, so that he may not turn aside from the commandments, setting up his own agenda, and so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in, in Israel. And so this is the, the standard of the kings. They are not to pursue the idols of money, sex, and power. Instead, they are to be men who are fixated on the word of God. They're not to deviate from the word of God. They're not to add to it or subtract from it. They're to read it, think about it, live it, speak it, pray it, and they're supposed to lead the people in it. That is what a godly leader of God's people is meant to do. No matter their, I don't know, gifts and, I don't know, the talents and skills, The most important thing is, does this man surrender himself to the word of God? And that's what's required of the king. And then we, if you remember, we spent some time in 1 and 2 Samuel in the fall, which was the rise of the kingdom, which depicts the history of how the kingdom came to be. But if you remember, right before 1 and 2 Samuel, we saw in the book of Judges, the very last sentence was this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, without the king, the nation of Israel is prone to rampant individuality and immorality. You become your own measure of morals. And so what that means is if we had a king who is devoted to God's word, he could lead us so that we're not all rampant individuals and engaging in immorality. We need someone who can lead us in God's word so we can become the kingdom of priests and the holy nation he wants us to be. But we don't have a king. We need one. And that's kind of where they're at. And then we were introduced to Samuel, as you remember, who anointed a man named Saul at God's command, and Saul abandoned God's word, and therefore he was rejected. And then we were introduced to David, who was God's chosen leader. Samuel anoints him as king, and he is referred to as the man after God's own heart. Even when he sinned, he did what God's word said. He repented, and so he was a God after man's own heart. And that is the same David that we are turning to now in 2 Samuel chapter 7 which contains the, Mosaic, or excuse me, the Davidic covenant. And we read in verses 8 and 9 how, where David comes from. It reminds us of Abraham, how Abraham was a nobody when God called him. And same with David. It actually said, the Lord says, I took you from the pasture, verse 8, from following the sheep so that you could be prince or leader over my people. David, you were nobody. You didn't come from nobody. You came from nowhere in particular. (laughs) Everything you have and everything you are is from me. I did this for you. In verse 9, I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. If you remember the promise that God gave to Abraham, that you, your name will be great. Very similar. And then David has promised a restful land in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And so David is promised a restful land. But what's really interesting is God says to David in verse 11, the rest I'm going to give you is unlike what you've experienced from the time of the judges. So if you know the, book, the, the Bible, you understand the book of Judges comes after what book? Joshua. And so what you have in Joshua is you have, as we'll read in Joshua chapter 21, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest. On every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of, the good, of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So up until the book of Joshua, there was rest, but it wasn't a final and full rest. It was only a partial rest. So when we get to the book of Judges, the rest is gone. The enemies have come, and the presence of war is always looming. So then God makes this other promise in the next book after Judges and Ruth, and we get to David. He makes a promise in First and Second Samuel, in this land, you used to have rest with Joshua, you lost it in Judges because of the individuality and immorality, I'm going to give it to you again. The rest will be here, but it won't be like the rest you used to have, it will be a better rest. It will be a fuller rest. And then we get to verses 11 to 16, which is the the meat of the Davidic covenant. And you're going to spend some time in your workbook learning about this, so I'm not going to unpack everything here. But starting in verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, God says, when the days, or excuse me, the end of verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, referring to a dynasty, a name, a heritage. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, reference to the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he, will be, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And your homework is to go read Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm that worked its way into the nation of Israel where they sang corporately as a people reminding themselves of their identity, namely that they are descendants of King David and his eternal kingdom and everlasting throne. So David responds to this great promise that one of your sons will sit on an everlasting throne over an everlasting kingdom, and though he may sin, I will discipline him, but I won't take my love away from him. My hesed will stay. How does David respond? Verse 18, he went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, who am I? You see, when you stand before God and you see his majesty and you hear his promises and you are a recipient of his grace, it humbles you that God would do such a thing. In verse 19, and David says, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, like, you know, forever. And then he says, and this is instruction for mankind. You see, even King David understood that the promise given to him is not merely or 
just for his own family. In fact, the promise extends and will have ramifications and implications for all of humanity, which reminds us of the promise of Abraham, right? You will be a blessing to all the nations. And it also reminds us that the the kingdom of Israel, this kingdom of priests is meant to be a light to the nations. And so the promise to David is meant for all mankind. And he says in verse 22 later in chapter 7, you are great, O God, there is none like you. That's all you can say in the presence of such majesty and grace. God, that's awesome. You are awesome. All right, so now we need to ask ourselves the question, how does the promise given to uh, David, how does it flesh itself out over the course of the history of the Jews? In other words, when we move right in our Bible and we start to unpack the history of Israel, the question I have is how far do we get before one of the offspring of David ends up becoming disloyal to the covenant and all kinds of riffraff starts happening? How long does it take? Roughly four chapters. No, I'm just kidding. You get to 1 Kings. And what you see in chapter 2, though, everything starts really, really well. In verse 1, David is about to die. He goes to his son Solomon, and he says to him, be strong, in verse 2, and show yourself a man, verse 3, and keep charge, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commands, and his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper, verse 4, the Lord will establish his word that he spoke concerning me. If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so David gives Solomon the words, keep true to the word of God. Don't don't deviate and straight to say the course. And then you get to verse 10, David dies. He's buried in Jerusalem in verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly Established. And what kind of kingdom was it? Well, you see in chapter 4, in verse, I got a new Bible and the pages stick together. Ugh. Verse 20, that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea, which is reminiscent of the promise given to Abraham. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over the kingdoms. And then he lists Oh, the, the actual geographical location, which is the exact parameters of what was promised to Abraham. And it's an amazing thing. Like God is just pouring out one blessing after another. And so Solomon builds the temple in the location that God had appointed for his name to be in Jerusalem. And at the dedication of the temple, there stands Solomon raising his hands and praying, O oh Lord God, chapter 8, verse 23, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing has said to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You've, you've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. And you just see one promise after another, just blessing, blessing, fulfillment. In fact, in 1 Kings 4.34, it says all the nations came to Solomon. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 24, the whole earth was beginning to seek the presence of Solomon. And so you just see mankind, nations coming, blessing. You see it? And you're thinking, man, this is the high point of the kingdom. You know, what could go wrong? Well, I skipped over what started to be. The cracks were already emerging in chapter 4, verse 26, where it says that Solomon began to accumulate literally tens of thousands of horses. 
come on, do we? <laughs> you wrote it in a book. You're supposed to memorize this, and you, you just transgressed it. And then you read in chapter 10 that he begins to accumulate great wealth. And he begins to accumulate a vast amount of wives. And that's all that it describes for Solomon. He did these three things, horses, wives, money. Dude, you literally had one job to do. Don't do those things. And he failed. And so God says in verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 11, here's kind of the indictment or, or what God has to say about this. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from uh, after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not wholly follow the Lord. And then in verse 9, it says that God was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned after other gods. And then verse 11, therefore the Lord says to Solomon... Since this has been your practice, that you have not kept my covenant and statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen." And from that point forward, you see that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Israel is torn in two. You have 10 tribes that go to the north, often called Israel. And as you read 1st, 2nd Kings and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you're going to see Asa and Jehoshaphat and all these people. They reigned, and it'll say, in Israel, and then others reigned in Judah. Because Israel was the northern kingdom, and Judah was the southern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom of the promise. And so later on in, in history, what ends up happening is in 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, takes them off in, into bondage, and forcibly and also by choice, the Jewish people begin to intermarry and interbreed with all the different nations of the Assyrians. And later on, they become known as half-breeds. And when you get to the New Testament, that is the people known as the Samaritans. But the Jews of the promise in Babylon, the southern, or excuse me, of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, they continue on for a little bit longer until about the 6th century BC when finally King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes and he conquers the southern kingdom. And you can read about that if you want to at the end of both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and also parts of Jeremiah. And then they're taken off into captivity for 70 years. And you can read about that in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Esther. Eventually, King Cyrus gives a decree. You can read about that in Isaiah. And eventually, the people come back to the land, and you can read that in Nehemiah and Ezra, where they rebuild the walls and the temple. However, the people cry because it's just not the same. The glory doesn't descend on the temple, and the old men who saw the previous temple weep because they know it's just not the same. And in fact, after that, it was 400 years of silence. No prophet, no word from God, just silence. But in the midst of all of this exile and all of this punishment, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And in the midst of that, one of the most famous texts, you probably remember, but it's in the context of all this curse. It reads, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
in the midst of covenant curses where it seems like God is no longer keeping his promise. It seems like the nation has lost the presence of God and the place of their land and also their prince. The three Ps, gone. No more king, no more kingdom. And yet the weeping prophet is kind of expressing the way the nations feel or the nation feels about God, which is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I will praise him though I have nothing. Because if you lose everything and you still got God, you got all you need. I want that kind of faith. I would love to have that kind of faith that sees this. And so the nation trusting the promise that his steadfast love never ceases, his mercies are new every morning, great is his faithfulness. They trusted for 400 years through the silence. Will God come? Will the kingdom be restored? Will a king in the line of David ever arrive? And for 400 years, nothing testing your faith. Until you flip your new Bible and you open up to the New Testament. And the very first sentence you read there, brothers and sisters, is this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son is coming. He's coming. The wait is almost over. And so the angel appears to Mary in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 30, and, she sa- and he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there is no end. Almost here. Well, it's almost here. You just got to wait nine more months. And he'll be here. And many of you know what that's like. If you were a child and you had a loved one that was gone for a long time, you hadn't seen them in a while, and you, I don't know, you're following them on your phone or you're tracking them and just kind of, they're almost here. They're down the street. They turned the corner. They're up the street. They're in the driveway. Ah! And you boom, you go outside and you greet. You know what I'm talking about? You've either been the child or you've been the parent, and you know what that's like. Now you have an understanding of what the people were feeling. They were in eager anticipation. He's almost here. I can feel it. And then it comes. Luke chapter 2, the shepherds appear to the, or the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. No more waiting. No more silence. He's here. He's come. Promise fulfilled. Word is true. Faithfulness delivered. Great is the Lord. That's why every Christmas we read this verse from Isaiah chapter 9. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
Therefore, the New Testament describes Jesus in explicit terms. He is the promised son of David. He is the king of kings. He is the one who reigns on an everlasting kingdom. He is the one we've been waiting for, longing for, hoping for. He has come. God has come through. He's delivered. Now, I need to prove this to you. That not only does the New Testament describe this, but Jesus himself understood his own identity and purpose in such a way. And I've gotten emails, and I know I need to spend less time up here. So I've chosen just one text, but I have literally countless others that I could use. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. A demon-oppressed man who can't speak, who can't see, comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him. Verse 23, all the people are amazed, and the question they ask is this, can this be the son of David? Not just anyone. Could this man be the son of David? And so the rest of the story is Jesus' answer. All right. Verse 24, the jealous Pharisees, they hear the question, and so they provide their own answer, and they say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Uh-oh, you went there. Go time. So Jesus knows their thoughts, and he says to them, he's going to point out their, their bad logic. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will ever stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Huh. By the way, Abraham Lincoln didn't invent that phrase. Jesus did. Keep going. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Gotcha. Therefore, they will be your judges. Your answer will be your judge. And then he gives a contrast. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what can we conclude? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Could this be the son of David? I don't know. Do you see a kingdom around anywhere? Um... Think so? Let me show you. Speak, see, walk. Miracle, miracle, miracle. So what's your answer? Am I the son of David? The evidence is in the miracles. I'm David. The kingdom is here. Holy smokes. Verse 29, how can... Someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, think about it real quick. I came to bring life. But first, I'm, I'm going to bind the strong man called Satan and all that he has to offer. I'm going to plunder that fool. I'm going to take everything that's his for myself. Wow. That's why Jesus, when he came, was preaching in Galilee all over the place, proclaiming the gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repeat, repent and believe the gospel. I love what Andrew Pack writes in the workbook on page 103. He says, this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom on earth. It is a kingdom not of this world. John 18, 36. 
It's composed of people from every tribe and nation and language, Revelation 5, 9, and 10, whose purpose is to follow their king by proclaiming his glory to the world, fulfilling their calling as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. And his kingdom extends not only to Israel, but to the ends of the earth through the church. This kingdom is here. And yet, we don't see or experience the kingdom in its fullness. And that's what theologians call the already and not yet. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet full. Just like the people in Israel and Joshua had rest in the nation. The kingdom was here already, but the rest was not yet here. It's more to come. Likewise, we as Christians live in God's kingdom that has already come but is not yet fully here. My question is, when is it coming? I want the full. Enough of the appetizers. Bring on the entree. So when is it coming? The kingdom of God was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming, and the kingdom of God will be completed at his second coming. Remember, at his first coming was the virgin birth, his life and obedience to death, his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of God. And as we have heard earlier in the sermon in Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus will appear a second time. There's only one and two appearings. And the second appearing, when he comes, he won't deal with sin, but instead he's going to save people who are eagerly waiting for him. So the question is, when is, when is the second coming? going to come, and when is the kingdom going to come, and, and how all that works? I'm glad you asked that question, like me, curious people, and I have an answer for you. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At his second coming, the kingdom of God will finally and fully come. When Christ returns, those who belong to him will be resurrected. Now, here's the resurrection chapter in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful chapters. It's one of the most important things. And it says in verse 20 that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Verse 21, it was by a man that came death through Adam and yet another man named Jesus through which the resurrection of the dead occurs. In verse 22, if you are born only in Adam, you're going to die. But if you are born not only in Adam, but also in Christ through the rebirth, which is regeneration, or in other words, if you have faith in Jesus, then you shall be made alive. But then he says in verse 23 that this, this resurrection has an order to it, verse 23, but each in his own order. So first is Christ, he's the first fruits. Then at his coming, and the Greek word here is parousia, which is always in reference to the appearing, the coming of Jesus Christ at his second coming. So at his coming, his appearance, when he returns, all those who belong to Christ then will raise. All those who belong to Christ will be raised. So there is a resurrection order. First Jesus, then all those who are his treasured possession, namely those Christians. And then it says in verse 24, then comes the end. Now, what is the indication or the clue that the end is upon us? Keep reading the verse. When 
He delivers the kingdom to God. Now, when is that going to happen? After destroying every rule and every authority and power. So when you put that together, the end will come when every rule and authority and power is put in submission to Jesus, and as a consequence, he then hands over the kingdom to God the Father. You tracking with me, church? We're doing Bible study. Interestingly enough, this same kind of phrase about having all authority over every rule and all that kind of stuff, in some way, Paul already identifies Jesus as having accomplished that. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul is giving this amazing prayer and he's praying that God would pour out his great power that he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21. And Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is far above all the same three words, rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, Jesus has all authority. He wasn't bluffing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them. You remember that? Well, he's sitting at the right hand of God. Authority and rule and power are submitted to him because he is everything. Oh. Verse 25. Back in 1 Corinthians. So just, just think that in, the end will come when all of that happens. And in some way that has already happened, according to Ephesians 1. Just think about that. Wow. Verse 25. For, and, and the Greek word here is gar, which means because. It, it, it gives the, the rationale behind what just came previously. So the reason why Jesus has to destroy every rule and all that kind of stuff is because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, Jesus can have no rivals. Because if Jesus is trying to do something in the world, he can't have an equal and opposite power. He has to be supreme in all things. So therefore, Jesus must rule and reign as supreme King of kings and Lord of lords, even now. That's a good thought. If Jesus is, if God is for me and not against me and nothing can stand against Jesus, what do I got to worry about? Whew. And then it says in verse 26, the last enemy, remember he has to destroy all the enemies, but the very last enemy that is to be destroyed is death. So let's put it all together. When Jesus finally kills death, then all the enemies of God will be conquered and destroyed. And when all of those enemies are conquered and destroyed, then God, or then Christ will hand the kingdom to God the Father, and the end comes. Now remember, all that I just said started in verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, Christ, the Christians. So think about that. When Jesus came the first time and he resurrected, that was when all the authority was submitted to him. But when he comes back the second time, all the enemies are finally and fully going to be vanquished and the last enemy, death, is going to be conquered. How do I know that? The Bible tells me so. Verse 50, chapter 15. 
I'm gonna ask a series of questions. You can respond verbally if you want to. If you don't, because you're self-conscious, that's fine. Verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, if you ever wanna be a part of the kingdom of God, you cannot do so while you're still in Adam. You must be in Christ. You must be born again. Born again status is what qualifies you for the kingdom of God. Now my question is, how do we become imperishable and receive resurrected bodies? Because that's what he's talking about, a resurrected body, imperishable body, one that cannot spoil, rot, or fade. How do, I, how do I get that? I want in on that. I'm glad you asked. Verse 51, Paul gives us our answer. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And the word sleep there is in reference to the Christians who die, but they're not really dead because they're about to get back to life. So we just call it sleep because the morning is coming. Does that make sense? So not all of us are going to sleep. Not all of us are going to die. There's going to be some of us who are still going to be alive. But nonetheless, whether you are dead or alive, we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. My next question is, when and how? Answer, verse 52. It will be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, something like that. <laughs> and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So think about this. Every time, without exception, in the Bible, last trumpet always equates with the second coming of Christ. So when trumpet blasts, Christ is coming, boom, resurrected. Whether you're dead or alive, you get the glorified body in that moment, twinkling of an eye, sound of the last trumpet in a moment. <laughs> All right. You tracking with me? Why must this happen? Why must it be this way? Verse 53, because, that's that word for, because this perishable body must put on an, the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, why must I have a resurrected body? Because verse 50, you can't inherit the kingdom of God without it. Okay. So what is the outcome of us being resurrected and receiving these glorified bodies? What will come about? Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality at the last trumpet, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, when the trumpet blasts and Jesus descends, we will be resurrected. And in that exact moment, death will be utterly defeated. Therefore, all of the enemies of God will have been conquered. Therefore, God will deliver the kingdom, or Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God. And that is the end. Now, what's amazing is when you look at verse 55, you know that Paul is quoting scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, 8. 
And in Hebrew poetry, which is what Isaiah is, it operates on this mode called parallelism, which means the first line is related to the second line. They're parallel in some way. And so we see in verse 8 of Isaiah 25, the quotation Paul uses, he will swallow up death forever, second line, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So my question is, when is death being vanquished, totally obliterated, and the wiping of tears, when do those two things come together in the New Testament? When do you see that? Oh, yeah. Choir just sang about it. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Now, who is ever called a bride, a collection of people? When are they called a bride? It's referenced to the church, which extends to the Old Testament. They adorned for her husband, verse 3, and behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. They go together because who of us have ever experienced death in one way or another and not shed a tear? But there's coming a day in the new heavens and new earth which are going to be ushered in at the coming of Jesus. When he descends, we arise with glorified bodies. And in that, death will be vanquished. Tears will be wiped away. The new creation has come. And all we have is unabated access to the presence of God where we no longer see him with the eyes of our faith but with the eyes in our head. And there we will be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And there death will be no more, no more mourning, no more tears, no more sadness, no more injustice. Everything will be righteous and good. And we as Christians have a hope of that moment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So when you put it all together, we realize, brothers and sisters, what we all ache for and long for is a place in which righteousness dwells, and we can't seek it in this world because God has not promised it in this world. He's promised it in the next. And the next world will come when Jesus comes, for he's already inaugurated the kingdom, but he will consummate the kingdom at his coming where we will get resurrected bodies and we will live with him forever and ever. That's why the Bible closes with these beautiful words, come, Lord Jesus come. Our hope and our joy are hanging uh, in the balance. Way out of time. Send Nemos. <laughs> Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have risen from the grave. Thank you how because of your resurrection, we too will rise who are in Christ. Thank you that through your resurrection and the eventual second coming that we will rise with new glorified bodies. And in that moment, death will be vanquished forever and ever. Every tear will be dried and every hope will be fulfilled and you will reign and rule over the whole earth and we alongside of you for you are making us a kingdom and priests to serve you forever. What a joy. In Jesus' name, amen.